Book four, chapter four of the history of the conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book four, chapter four. Montezuma's deportment, his life in the Spanish quarters, meditated insurrection, Lord of Tezcuco seized, further measures of Cortes. The settlement of La Villa Rica de Veracruz was of the last importance to the Spaniards. It was the port by which they were to communicate with Spain. The strong post on which they were to retreat in case of disaster, and which was to bridle their enemies and give security to their allies, the point d'appui for all their operations in the country. It was of great moment, therefore, that the care of it should be entrusted to proper hands. A cavalier named Alonso de Grado had been sent by Cortes to take the place made vacant by the death of Escalante. He was a person of greater repute in civil than military matters, and would be more likely, it was thought, to maintain peaceful relations with the natives, than a person of more belligerent spirit. Cortes made, what was rare with him, a bad choice. He soon received such accounts of troubles in the settlement, from the exactions and negligence of the new governor, that he resolved to supersede him. He now gave the command to Gonzalo de Sandoval, a young cavalier who had displayed through the whole campaign singular intrepidity, united with sagacity and discretion, while the good humour with which he bore every privation, and his affable manners, made him a favourite with all, privates as well as officers. Sandoval accordingly left the camp for the coast. Cortes did not mistake his man a second time. Notwithstanding the actual control exercised by the Spaniards through their royal captive, Cortes felt some uneasiness when he reflected that it was in the power of the Indians at any time to cut off his communications with the surrounding country and hold him a prisoner in the capital. He proposed, therefore, to build two vessels of sufficient size to transport his forces across the lake, and thus to render himself independent of the causeways. Montezuma was pleased with the idea of seeing those wonderful water-houses, of which he had heard so much, and readily gave permission to have the timber in the royal forests felled for the purpose. The work was placed under the direction of Martin Lopez, an experienced shipbuilder. Orders were also given to Sandoval to send up from the coast a supply of cordage, sails, iron, and other necessary materials, which had been judiciously saved on the destruction of the fleet. The Aztec emperor, meanwhile, was passing his days in the Spanish quarters, in no very different manner from what he had been accustomed to in his own palace. His keepers were too well aware of the value of their prize, not to do everything which could make his captivity comfortable, and disguise it from himself. But the chain will gall, though wreathed with roses. After Montezuma's breakfast, which was a light meal of fruits or vegetables, Cortes or some of his officers usually waited on him, to learn if he had any commands for them. He then devoted some time to business. 
He gave audience to those of his subjects who had petitions to prefer or suits to settle. The statement of the party was drawn up on the hieroglyphic scrolls, which were submitted to a number of councillors, or judges, who assisted him with their advice on these occasions. Envoys from foreign states, or his own remote provinces and cities, were also admitted, and the Spaniards were careful that the same precise and punctilious etiquette should be maintained towards the royal puppet, as when in the plenitude of his authority. After the business was dispatched, Montezuma often amused himself with seeing the Castilian troops go through their military exercises. He too had been a soldier, and in his prouder days led armies in the field. It was very natural he should take an interest in the novel display of European tactics and discipline. At other times he would challenge Cortes or his officers to play at some of the national games. A favourite one was called Totoloque, played with golden balls aimed at a target or mark of the same metal. Montezuma usually staked something of value, precious stones or ingots of gold. He lost with good humour. Indeed, it was of little consequence whether he won or lost, since he generally gave away his winnings to his attendants. He had, in truth, a most munificent spirit. His enemies accused him of avarice. But, if he were avaricious, it could have been only that he might have the more to give away. Each of the Spaniards had several Mexicans, male and female, who attended to his cooking and various other personal offices. Cortes, considering that the maintenance of this host of menials was a heavy tax on the royal exchequer, ordered them to be dismissed, excepting one to be retained for each soldier. Montezuma, on learning this, pleasantly remonstrated with the general on his careful economy as unbecoming a royal establishment, and, countermanding the order, caused additional accommodations to be provided for the attendants, and their pay to be doubled. On another occasion, a soldier purloined some trinkets of gold from the treasure kept in the chamber, which, since Montezuma's arrival in the Spanish quarters, had been reopened. Cortes would have punished the man for the theft, but the emperor, interfering, said to him, Your countrymen are welcome to the gold and other articles, if you will but spare those belonging to the gods. Some of the soldiers, making the most of his permission, carried off several hundred loads of fine cotton to their quarters. When this was represented to Montezuma, he only replied, What I have once given, I never take back again. While thus indifferent to his treasures, he was keenly sensitive to personal slight or insult. When a common soldier once spoke to him angrily, the tears came into the monarch's eyes, as it made him feel the true character of his impotent condition. Cortes, on becoming acquainted with it, was so much incensed that he ordered the soldier to be hanged, but on Montezuma's intercession commuted this severe sentence for a flogging. The general was not willing that any one but himself should treat his royal captive with indignity. Montezuma was desired to procure a further mitigation of the punishment, but he refused, saying, that if a similar insult had been offered by any one of his subjects to Malinche, he would have resented it in like manner. Such instances of disrespect were very rare. Montezuma's amiable and inoffensive manners, together with his liberality, the most popular of virtues with the vulgar, made him generally beloved by the Spaniards. 
The arrogance, for which he had been so distinguished in his prosperous days, deserted him in his fallen fortunes. His character in captivity seems to have undergone something of that change which takes place in the wild animals of the forest, when caged within the walls of the menagerie. The Indian monarch knew the name of every man in the army, and was careful to discriminate his proper rank. For some he showed a strong partiality. He obtained from the general a favourite page, named Orteguilla, who, being in constant attendance on his person, soon learnt enough of the Mexican language to be of use to his countrymen. Montezuma took great pleasure also in the society of Velázquez de León, the captain of his guard, and Pedro de Alvarado, Tonatio, or the Sun, as he was called by the Aztecs, from his yellow hair and sunny countenance. The sunshine, as events afterwards showed, could sometimes be the prelude to a terrible tempest. Notwithstanding the care taken to cheat him of the tedium of captivity, the royal prisoner cast a wistful glance now and then beyond the walls of his residence to the ancient haunts of business or pleasure. He intimated a desire to offer up his devotions at the great temple, where he was once so constant in his worship. The suggestion startled Cortes. It was too reasonable, however, for him to object to it, without wholly discarding the appearance which he was desirous to maintain. But he secured Montezuma's return by sending an escort with him of a hundred and fifty soldiers, under the same resolute cavaliers who had aided in his seizure. He told him also that, in case of any attempt to escape, his life would instantly pay the forfeit. Thus guarded, the Indian prince visited the Teocali, where he was received with the usual state, and after performing his devotions, he returned again to his quarters. It may well be believed that the Spaniards did not neglect the opportunity afforded by his residence with them, of instilling into him some notions of the Christian doctrine. Fathers Diaz and Olmedo exhausted all their battery of logic and persuasion to shake his faith in his idols, but in vain. He indeed paid a most edifying attention, which gave promise of better things. But the conferences always closed with the declaration that the God of the Christians was good, but the gods of his own country were the true gods for him. It is said, however, they extorted a promise from him that he would take part in no more human sacrifices. Yet such sacrifices were of daily occurrence in the great temples of the capital, and the people were too blindly attached to their bloody abominations for the Spaniards to deem it safe, for the present at least, openly to interfere. Montezuma showed also an inclination to engage in the pleasures of the chase, of which he once was immoderately fond. He had large forests reserved for the purpose on the other side of the lake. As the Spanish brigantines were now completed, Cortes proposed to transport him and his suite across the water in them. They were of a good size, strongly built. The largest was mounted with four falconets or small guns. It was protected by a gaily coloured awning stretching over the deck, and the royal ensign of Castile floated proudly from the mast. On board of this vessel, Montezuma, delighted with the opportunity of witnessing the nautical skill of the white men, embarked with a train of Aztec nobles and a numerous guard of Spaniards. 
a fresh breeze played on the waters and the vessel soon left behind it the swarms of light pirogues which darkened their surface she seemed like a thing of life in the eyes of the astonished natives who saw her as if disdaining human agency sweeping by with snowy pinions as if on the wings of the wind while the thunders from her sides now for the first time breaking on the silence of this inland sea showed that the beautiful phantom was clothed in terror the royal chase was well stocked with game some of which the emperor shot with arrows and others were driven by the numerous attendants into nets in these woodland exercises while he ranged over his wild domain montezuma seemed to enjoy again the sweets of liberty it was but the shadow of liberty however as in his quarters at home he enjoyed but the shadow of royalty at home or abroad the eye of the spaniard was always upon him but while he resigned himself without a struggle to his inglorious fate there were others who looked on it with very different emotions among them was his nephew kakama lord of tethkuko a young man not more than twenty-five years of age but who enjoyed great consideration from his high personal qualities especially his intrepidity of character he was the same prince who had been sent by montezuma to welcome the spaniards on their first entrance into the valley and when the question of their reception was first debated in the council he had advised to admit them honourably as ambassadors of a foreign prince and if they should prove different from what they pretended it would be time enough then to take up arms against them that time he thought had now come in a former part of this work the reader has been made acquainted with the ancient history of the Acoluan or Tescucan monarchy, once the proud rival of the Aztec in power, and greatly its superior in civilization. Under its last sovereign, Nezahualpili, its territory is said to have been grievously clipped by the insidious practices of Montezuma, who fomented dissensions and insubordination among his subjects. On the death of the Tethkukan prince, the succession was contested, and a bloody war ensued between his eldest son, Kakama, and an ambitious younger brother, Ishtlilshotchitl. This was followed by a partition of the kingdom, in which the latter chieftain held the mountain districts north of the capital, leaving the residue to Kakama. Though shorn of a large part of his hereditary domain, the city was itself so important that the lord of Tezcuco still held a high rank among the petty princes of the valley. His capital, at the time of the conquest, contained, according to Cortes, a hundred and fifty thousand inhabitants. It was embellished with noble buildings, rivalling those of Mexico itself. The young Tezcucan chief beheld with indignation and no slight contempt the abject condition of his uncle he endeavoured to rouse him to manly exertion but in vain he then set about forming a league with several of the neighbouring caciques to rescue his kinsmen and to break the detested yoke of the strangers he called on the lord of iztapalapan montezuma's brother the lord of tlacopan and some others of most authority all of whom entered heartily into his views he then urged the aztec nobles to join them but they expressed an unwillingness to take any step not first sanctioned by the emperor 
they entertained undoubtedly a profound reverence for their master but it seems probable that jealousy of the personal views of kakama had its influence on their determination whatever were their motives it is certain that by this refusal they relinquished the best opportunity ever presented for retrieving their sovereign's independence and their own these intrigues could not be conducted so secretly as not to reach the ears of cortez who with his characteristic promptness would have marched at once on tezcuco and trodden out the spark of rebellion before it had time to burst into a flame but from this he was dissuaded by montezuma who represented that kakama was a man of resolution backed by a powerful force and not to be put down without a desperate struggle he consented therefore to negotiate and sent a message of amicable expostulation to the cacique he received a haughty answer in return cortes rejoined in a more menacing tone asserting the supremacy of his own sovereign the emperor of castile to this cacama replied he acknowledged no such authority he knew nothing of the spanish sovereign nor his people nor did he wish to know anything of them Montezuma was not more successful in his application to Cacama to come to Mexico and allow him to mediate his differences with the Spaniards, with whom he assured the prince he was residing as a friend. But the young lord of Tezcuco was not to be so duped. He understood the position of his uncle, and replied that when he did visit his capital it would be to rescue it, as well as the emperor himself and their common gods, from bondage he should come not with his hand in his bosom but on his sword to drive out the detested strangers who had brought such dishonour on their country cortes incensed at this tone of defiance would again have put himself in motion to punish it but montezuma interposed with his more politic arts he had several of the tezcucan nobles he said in his pay and it would be easy through their means to secure cacama's person and thus break up the confederacy at once without bloodshed the maintaining of corps of stipendiaries in the courts of neighbouring princes was a refinement which showed that the western barbarian understood the science of political intrigue as well as some of his royal brethren on the other side of the water by the contrivance of these faithless nobles kakama was induced to hold a conference relative to the proposed invasion in a villa which overhung the tezcucan lake not far from his capital like most of the principal edifices it was raised so as to admit the entrance of boats beneath it in the midst of the conference kakama was seized by the conspirators hurried on board a bark in readiness for the purpose and transported to mexico when brought into montezuma's presence the high-spirited chief abated nothing of his proud and lofty bearing he taxed his uncle with his perfidy and a pusillanimity so unworthy of his former character and of the royal house from which he was descended by the emperor he was referred to cortes who holding royalty but cheap in an indian prince put him in fetters there was at this time in mexico a brother of cacama a stripling much younger than himself at the instigation of cortes montezuma pretending that his nephew had forfeited the sovereignty by his late rebellion declared him to be deposed and appointed quitquitzca in his place 
the Aztec sovereigns had always been allowed a paramount authority in questions relating to the succession, but this was a most unwarrantable exercise of it. The Tezcucans acquiesced, however, with a ready ductility, which showed their allegiance hung but lightly on them, or, what is more probable, that they were greatly in awe of the Spaniards, and the new prince was welcomed with acclamations to his capital. Cortes still wanted to get into his hands the other chiefs who had entered into the confederacy with Cacama. This was no difficult matter. Montezuma's authority was absolute, everywhere but in his own palace. By his command the caciques were seized, each in his own city, and brought in chains to Mexico, where Cortes placed them in strict confinement with their leader. He had now triumphed over all his enemies. He had set his foot on the necks of princes, and the great chief of the Aztec Empire was but a convenient tool in his hands for accomplishing his purposes. His first use of this power was to ascertain the actual resources of the monarchy. He sent several parties of Spaniards, guided by the natives, to explore the regions where gold was obtained. It was gleaned mostly from the beds of rivers several hundred miles from the capital. His next object was to learn if there existed any good natural harbour for shipping on the Atlantic coast, as the road of Vera Cruz left no protection against the tempests that at certain seasons swept over these seas. Montezuma showed him a chart on which the shores of the Mexican Gulf were laid down with tolerable accuracy. Cortes, after carefully inspecting it, sent a commission consisting of ten Spaniards, several of them pilots, and some Aztecs, who descended to Veracruz, and made a careful survey of the coast for nearly sixty leagues south of that settlement, as far as the great river Coatzalcoalco, which seemed to offer the best, indeed the only, accommodations for a safe and suitable harbour. A spot was selected as the site of a fortified post, and the general sent a detachment of a hundred and fifty men, under Velázquez de Leon, to plant a colony there. He also obtained a grant of an extensive tract of land in the fruitful province of Oaxaca, where he proposed to lay out a plantation for the crown. He stocked it with the different kinds of domesticated animals peculiar to the country, and with such indigenous grains and plants as would afford the best articles for export. He soon had the estate under such cultivation that he assured his master, the Emperor Charles V, it was worth twenty thousand ounces of gold. End of Book 4, Chapter 4